you're a unelected branch of government with lifetime appointments. Don't you think you owe it to the American people to keep a record of this stuff and release it to say, all right, like, here's our ethical code, which is non-existent, really. And here's how we're going to enforce ourselves. And here's how we've done it over the past. And we're going to keep a record at the Supreme Court of these conversations. We're actually going to be as transparent as we possibly can, because you know what? We're really grateful for this lifetime, super powerful appointment that we get from the American people. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Ricky, where are you in the world right now? I am in Rome at the moment. I just got here from Florence yesterday. We're celebrating my mom's birthday that shall not be named, but it's a big one. Uh-uh. And um, yeah, and her boyfriend just arrived too. So we're having a fun little night and I'm back to New York uh, tomorrow, but coming to you live from Rome, Buonasera. Have I you think, been to Rome before? I'm- I have um, when I was like 12, though, so I don't really think it counts. So this is my first like adult trip here, which is cool because mm-hmm. I took Latin for six. Yeah, you should speak six years. Go up to or people something. speak Latin. Yeah. Well, now I have to get my tuition uh, bang for my buck by reading monuments, and I don't even know any of it anymore. So it's very sad, but it's it's a cool place to be. Great so, city. Hello from Rome. Great Ciao. city. Probably a great time to be there. The energy is probably awesome on the streets. Although you're coming back to a New York that is hot. And also yeah. really, really pumping right now. Joe, I don't really? know if you're feeling this. Like the, the streets of New York are vibrant right now. It's very I exciting. haven't been outside in 14 days. There you go. <laughs> well, you should, after the show, you should, well, I know you're going to take a walk over to this office. I'm actually at our office for the first time in a while recording. And um, you could see I have insulation around me now. So I'm more official today. But the big announcement is that we have rebranded the company Lost Debate. We are now called The Branch. And we're going to link in the show notes to a whole explanation as to why we did this and what this means to the future. There's some exciting stuff about what we just plan to do in the future. But the short story, for longtime listeners of this podcast, you will know that even on this show, which will continue to be called The Lost Debate, we don't really debate that much. So to call the whole company Lost Debate can sometimes confuse people. So we changed the name to The Branch. And it has a double meaning. One is, you know, olive branch to people who are ideologically different than you, which obviously is the spirit of this podcast and our entire network, right? But also the fourth branch of government, which is a term to describe the press, civil society, et cetera, like its role in holding government accountable and helping to make our institutions better. So you could read all about it in this little manifesto of sorts that we wrote. Uh, and if you like it, share it. And you'll also find exciting information about stuff that we've got going on in the future. Uh, We're also now going to be back on YouTube in full for these episodes. So not just the audio, but the video as well. So you can go to our YouTube page and find the branch there. Make sure you subscribe there. And uh, we still have our voicemail, 321-200-0570. We're going to actually respond to a voicemail from a young listener at the end of this very show. But speaking of young listeners, there's a controversy around an after-school Satan club Really fascinating discussion about free speech there. We're also going to talk about toxic masculinity and whether it's responsible for misogynistic figures like Andrew Tate. But first, a controversy around Justice Clarence Thomas. A brand new report is raising some serious questions about Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. ProPublica exposed that Thomas has this close secret relationship with a super donor. 
Thomas has vacationed on Harlan Crow's 162-foot super yacht, flown on his private jet, and spent time at his private resorts for more than two decades. ProPublica says that none of those trips appear on Thomas's financial disclosures. Thomas said in a statement that he was advised by colleagues on the nation's highest court and others in the federal judiciary that, quote, this sort of personal hospitality from close personal friends who did not have business before the court was not reportable. I know that there are calls for Chief Justice to, for the Chief Justice Roberts to initiate an investigation. I do not think that uh, this court any longer has the legitimacy. It is the House's responsibility to well, pursue that investigation in the form of impeachment. All right, Joe, drop some knowledge on us. What's going on here? Yeah, so ProPublica revealed last Thursday that Justice Clarence Thomas has been accepting private jet rides, super yacht adventures, and summer vacays from Texas real estate billionaire and major conservative donor Harlan Crow for nearly two decades. Thomas accepted these lavish gifts without reporting them in his annual financial disclosures, which included trips to Indonesia and to Bohemian Grove, an exclusive retreat nestled in the redwoods of Northern California. And as you just heard in a statement, Thomas said he was advised by his colleagues in the federal judiciary that these gifts weren't necessary to report. He goes on to say in a statement that it is his intention to follow the new guidance issued by the Committee of the Judicial Conference issued just this past month. But that has not stopped Democrats from accusing Thomas of breaching ethical and even legal lines, some even calling for his impeachment, as you just heard uh, from AOC. Ravi, as the only one of us who might have gone to law school, do you smell anything fishy here? Oh, I sure do. <laughs> uh, it's First of all, his statement, I call bullshit on his statement to, to be like, all right, all my colleagues who are pretty much all dead, I talked to them back in the day about this, and there's no record of it that we're going to release that I ever sought anybody's advice on this, which let's pretend, let's take it totally at face value that he took their, like, you know, all of these people's advice. First of all, you're not going to update that, like, over time. You're not going to continue to ask them, especially as the ethics rules evolved over this period of time and just our norms as a society, the leadership of the court changes. So you're not going to then seek advice moving forward. So that's a big question mm -hmm. I have. And the second thing is you're a unelected branch of government with lifetime appointments don't you think you owe it to the American people to keep a record of this stuff and release it to say, all right, like, here's our ethical code, which we'll get to, which is non-existent, really. And here's how we're going to enforce ourselves. And here's how we've done it over the past. And we're going to keep a record at the Supreme Court of these conversations as they happen so that when this kind of stuff happens, we're not going to do as, as they did over the past week. Stonewall reporters issue a statement and then not clarify when asked for question, asked questions. We're actually going to be as tr transparent as we possibly can because you know what? We're really grateful for this lifetime, super powerful appointment that we get from the American people. So I find this appalling. I'm not sure it's illegal, but I find it appalling. Yeah, I'm not convinced that it's going to turn out to be illegal in the end. But I mean, I think it's certainly just more reason why of all of all positions of power that you can hold in this country, this would be the last one that I think you should have uh, minimal requirements to disclose anything like this. I don't I'm, I've yet to see any sort of evidence that he had some vested interest in buying Thomas's influence or, or um, seat in the court or that he voted 
and as or changed his opinion on something as a result of this friendship. Um, but this guy for background is like a kind of a big GOP donor, like Her- Heritage Foundation, FedSoc, all the kind of classics. He's a real estate heir. Um, I mean, I think there's a variety of of things that are being pulled out here. And I, I would say that there's an important difference between, you know, if I'm going to go and stay, if I have a super hoity-toity friend with a house in the Hamptons and I stay with him or her, I'm not going to say, oh, I'm going to pay them and so, or I would never pay them. And so I don't know that I necessarily would need to disclose what is considered hospitality versus, you know, going to a commercial place in a resort. Like it seems at times he did, um, on someone else's dollar or, um, taking private jet rides. Certainly I think that's a different situation. I I would say that we're dredging up quite a lot. And I don't think that, I think he has much better, uh, a much better case to be made to say, you know, I, I went to my friend's house. We've been friends for decades and yeah, he happens to be a rich guy, but you know, I wasn't, it's not like I'm accepting a gift that has a monetary value that I wouldn't have if I was not friends with them. Yeah. So I, the amount of money I mean, is staggering. Like this guy, like, you know, Clarence Thomas makes something on the order of what, Joe, like $250,000 a year or something like that as a Supreme Court justice. So let's round it up. Let's say he makes $300,000 a year. One trip was reported to be $500,000 around yeah. 500000 I mean, that's crazy. So number one, I think most people, unless they're so brain damaged by their polarization, we can, we can all agree this is wrong and we should try to fix it. Uh, well, I'm curious, wrong on the basis of the fact that that was excusable to have not, that he didn't have to report that or wrong just because he is going on these vacations, I think, period? I think both. Uh, and and I'll, let me make an analogy. I think the non-reporting is appalling because that just means that, like, if we don't even know about it, we can't even hold people accountable to, like, to even find to out who they're with interests. and who's paying. Yeah, yeah no, like, sure. And, like, a good example of this is, like the Supreme Court is so powerful. Like with one line in a Supreme Court opinion, you could change entire industries. So, mm-hmm. and then you I obviously we have district courts and appeals courts, et cetera. So, like we have a huge interest in making sure that people aren't being bribed in a soft way or a real way. The second part of this is that, like, I'll, I'll give it by way of analogy. So, like Harlan, a lot of focus is on Harlan Crow, right? Like, did he have business before the court? I take it as a given that he did not. I have not seen any reporting um, to suggest that he has. Now, uh, he is taking Thomas on these trips, and he's alongside people who have very strong views about the direction of the court. Now, if we, like, for instance, Leonard Leo, longtime leader of the Federalist Society. Now, there's nothing wrong with Leonard Leo having a, a position on the court. But let's say you're Harlan Crow and you have an opinion about deregulation and about abortion, et cetera, and you're paying for Thomas to then spend time with Leonard Leo, which is was memorialized in a painting. They spent so much time together. There's a painting hanging up in one of these houses of Leonard Leo and Thomas together. Now, the analogy here would be like, Ricky, let's say, for instance, I, I made you the chair or the, the, the good people of this country made you the chair of the a pretend panel I'm making up on, on animal ethics. You're the very first chair of animal ethics in the House of Representatives. And Joe, billionaire here, Joe Garvey, has been really successful in life. He has no business before the House animal ethics uh, panel, but he has a lot of opinions on animal rights. He thinks there shouldn't be any. So what he does is he flies you out to Joe's like private estate to spend time with the meatpacking industry executives. Now, just because Joe doesn't have business before the court, the, the panel on that, we would call that unethical. And I think that's part of what I'm seeing with this is – Partially due to the lack of transparency, we don't know everything that's going on. But when yeah, I see, yeah, I'm a painting, seeing the potential. You know? I'm seeing yeah. the potential of it. But 
you know, also you do end up with people like-minded people in your industry that you could theoretically just become friendly with in a, in a completely innocent way that, but that would be more reason why he should be disclosing these things and it shouldn't be um, a secretive situation. But I think that a lot of why this, this conversation is being renewed right now, because they're, I mean, we've known that they have a connection for a long time. This is not news to anyone. They've, they've publicly been friendly. It's not like we just discovered this. Um, But in March of this year, there's a new um, set of rules that applies to, um, to people of high office in the country theoretically including Clarence Thomas which would um broaden out some of the things we had we had a very vague uh conduct code essentially yep. for supreme court justices we still do um but this made it a little bit more clear and one of the things still it's the the idea that if someone is just providing you hospitality that you might just get otherwise in a friendship you don't have to report that and i think that's appropriate but this does specify commercial properties and private jets as things that would be this type of thing that would not be normal hospitality. Um, retroactively, this certainly seems to apply to Clarence Thomas's situation. It's it's worth noting at the time that, I mean, at, at some point in time, we decided it was important enough to clarify it that we made these new rules. So I think he did probably have sufficient reason to think that this was vague enough yep. to just kind of roll with it. So I'm, I'm more concerned about what would happen going forward. I mean, I think that obviously this news cycle is not flattering on him and I'm yep. sure that he will correct this for sure. It also went in really weird directions and like this guilt by association trying to make Harlan Crow out to be like a, a, a Nazi Hitler memorabilia collector who's potentially a fascist. There were some really bizarre headlines and including Rolling Stones. Thomas's billionaire uh, buddy has a vast collection of his Hitler paintings and stuff like that. Um, so I think there was like an attempt to character smear him on a level beyond just like, let's just talk about what's at hand here. Yeah. And also that was just a weird diversion because he also has like a, an entire garden full of statues of like Lenin and Mao and stuff. So yeah, I'm not I had sure a, that I had fun with the Hitler stuff yesterday on Midas network. I did not call him a Nazi. I just had fun with the way people were talking about it. The, well, the way that people are talking about it is so weird. Cause they're like, well, yeah, he, ha- they, he has the Stalin and Mao statues outside and all these other dictators, but the Hitler stuff is inside, but the Hitler stuff is like paintings. I have no, like, this is one of those areas where I'm with you. I, I don't I don't know enough about Harlan Crow to say one thing or another about like whether he's a Nazi or not. But I do think that uh, and I don't even mean that as like a like maybe he is, maybe he isn't. I, I just don't even No, I think like, he's I, clearly yeah, like very anti authoritarian yeah, in any form. <laughs> I do not mean to impugn the man's character. I know nothing about him. The but but Thomas, like here's the problem I have with this, because the Ethics and Government Act of nineteen seventy eight mentions like avoiding, quote, even the appearance of impropriety. Now, that's not a binding thing, but I want my Supreme yeah. Court justices to be totally above the fray. And Roberts doesn't come out looking good here because just even a couple of years ago, he basically said, you know what? We'll police ourselves. Now, I want to know what Roberts knew, but he doesn't have to say anything, right? The other thing that bothers yeah. me here, and, and so the other thing is like, we can have all the rules about private jets we want. We can have all the rules about et cetera, but the Supreme Court has to enforce this on themselves. There's not even a way to formally issue a complaint against the Supreme Court. 
in the way you could district judges or appeals court judges or your member of Congress, your local court. Like they are just saying none of the rules apply to us. And we've talked about this in other contexts, whether it's like protesters outside of the Supreme Court and how they treat those versus protesters outside of an abortion clinic or, you know, the egregious, I think, uh, non-recusal from Thomas when it had to do with his wife's conduct. But the thing that really appalls me about this is when like the summer before I went to law school, I went to the Supreme Court for the first time. And I sat down in a little discussion with Clarence Thomas, and it's for the first and only time I ever met him. And he did like an hour and a half with us, and I was I, I left, and I was like, you know what? I'm a Democrat. I was even Democrat back then. And I said to my buddy, Anthony Vitarelli, I said, this guy is really in touch because he told this story, which I'm about to play, which is in a Harlan Crow-funded documentary, by the way. He told this story about how he's like out and about man of the people. I prefer the RV parks. I prefer the Walmart parking lots to the beaches and things like that. There's something normal to me about it. I've come from regular stock, and I prefer that. <laughs> it's just so look, there's nothing we could do about this. Being a hypocrite is like it it's not if it were a crime, we'd all be in jail. But like I think the What's fascinating this about me is it gets to something we talk about in this podcast all the time, which is this question of populism and how people present themselves, which is why, like, if you're in Italy or if I'm in Costa Rica or traveling or whatever, like, I'm not doing the and, – and, and no no offense to Tucker Carlson. I'm not doing the, like, flannel in my barn in my $20 million mansion shtick. I don't have a $20 million mansion, but I'm doing okay. And I think it's like bullshit for these people who claim to be every people. Like nine out of 10 of them are actually the opposite of populist. They look down upon people. They don't spend time with regular people. They pretend like they're every people. And I'm smelling a little bit of this on on Clarence Thomas. I'm not saying he's not going to RV parks, but he like very conveniently left out some of the other trips that he's been going on. And I find that notable when we think about his politics. Yeah, I still take issue with the anti-populist label, though. I think there's a difference between being anti-populist and not a populist. And yes, I might be in Italy right now, but my greatest effort in life is to make the fact that I'm in Italy right now not be reflective of my viewpoint of the world or make me feel like I'm in some elevated viewpoint from from day-to-day regular issues and kitchen table sort of problems that people are having. So, you know, I'm not, I'm certainly not, I'm not anti-populist. I will not, that label is not going to work for me, but I'm, I'm not a populist. I'm not saying I'm, I'm, Whatever. Well, I will leave your straw man on po- anti-populism for another day. That is not what we mean by anti-populism. But you can go read about it in our manifesto on the branch. Um, and I know, I but I don't like the word anti-populism. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Because I think, yes, there's there are undesirable strains of populism for sure. But the idea that a populist and that regular folk have, have insights that just being in an influential position divorces you from, I think is a completely true thing. So I would say I'm, I'm not a populist, but I don't know about anti-populist. Sorry, I derailed us here. No, yeah. I, no, I actually think it's a really good segue in many ways. But I think like when I say we're anti-populist, I don't mean we're anti-people. I think I'm saying that populism is in and of itself is an ideology 
that I find disingenuous often. You know, it's like preying on the emotions of people. I find it to be the opposite of being for the people. Because most often when I think of populism, I think of people like Hugo Chavez or Trump uh, and people like that, or maybe even Bernie Bernie Sanders. And maybe even Bernie Sanders. So like these people who left or right claim to be for the people, but are manipulating the people. That's what we're against. We can call it whatever it wants, but that is like the flag that we plant. I'll and be I, anti-false populism. There you that? go. You uh, can put that that amendment in for me. Okay. I actually think we could. We are now going to talk about Satan. Uh, Joe, uh-huh. one of your favorite people. What's going on here? <laughs> I just came from the Vatican this morning, actually. That's funny. Let's cleanse ourselves of uh, of all that Jesus talk. Let's 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 hear from the other side. We you know what we we do hear from both sides here on Lost Debate Joe. Let's let's hear this man out. What's going on on the other side of this argument? All right, all right. So uh, let me take a step back. On March 30th, the ACLU filed a lawsuit against a Pennsylvania school district for violating the First Amendment by discriminating against. Get this the After School Satanic Club, or ASSC. Now, before you get your holy water ready, you should know that Satan to them is more of a euphemism, not to be taken literally. The ASSC was created by the Satanic Temple, which, contrary to what its name suggests, is a non-theistic organization that promotes free thought and challenges authority. They created the ASSC to provide an alternative to the evangelical after-school clubs known as the Good News Clubs that were popping up all over the country. In fact, there are over roughly 6,200 evangelical after-school clubs in public schools in America, compared to less than 10 after-school satanic clubs, one of the most recent being proposed in Sutton Valley School District. Initially, the district allowed the proposal, but after facing threats and public upheaval, they rescinded the permission. Not long after, the ACLU got involved, and after a month-long debate, the case has been taken to federal courts. Ricky, I don't suppose you were a member of the After School Satanic Club back in the day? No. My cross around my neck might say otherwise, but um, yeah, this is an interesting one because this is certainly, I understand the First Amendment grounds for it. Um, It's it's been kind of amusing to see what their supposed virtues are as a club. they, it seems as though they're using the Satan name as like a shock value countercultural thing, which I don't know if that's necessarily like I view that as like a, an appropriate situation. But, you know, that's my own viewpoint. Um, they they claim that their virtues are benevolence, empathy, critical thinking, problem solving, creative expression, personal sovereignty and compassion, which sounds more like an enlightenment sort of situation or like a like a secular science sort of organization to me than a Satan club. But, you know, to 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 allow them to speak for themselves, I think that we should listen to their theme song. Satan's not an evil guy. He wants you to learn and question why. He wants you to have fun and be yourself. And by the way, there is no hell. Science is important. So we understand the world. Satan looks for truth. Let's help him, boys and girls. Satan's not an evil guy. I find this really funny. You know, this is, I love it when kids 
pushback like this. And you know, well, this is also like a national though. This is run by the Satanic Temple, and this is like chapters are run by this not kid group as well. So you know, there's there is central leadership. It's not just like you know, like a gang of kids was like we're going to start a Satan club because we're the emo punk Mm -hmm. kids and it was just their total own invention. And I think one of the things that I'm just going to like, I'm not making, I think that they should have their free speech rights. I don't think that they should be um, discriminated against based on their viewpoint. But I would like to point out that this whole shtick of like, this is not a religious thing. And this is, we're just using Satan as a stand in blah, blah, blah. This whole ACLU case is on the basis of religious freedom on the basis that this sat- the satanic temple is recognized by the IRS as a religious organization and is tax exempt on that basis. So I do think it's kind of BS to be like, oh no, we're just like a, a science club. Like there is something a little un- dishonest about that, but I would I'm, expect nothing less from a Satan club. That's I'm pro okay. them. I think because obviously it's, it's obviously I mean, tongue in cheek. Not, it's tongue in cheek. It reminds, it, though, me, but, it reminds me of the birds the, is not real thing. And from what I understand, like I, it's, you're all right that it is elsewhere, but I think they're just they happen to be organized. Religions we no, don't yeah, criticize religion for these having kids. like I'm a megastructure. No, you know, no, I'm not talking about these kids. But I'm saying that the idea that this is like some this is not a secular thing. It's being run by an organization, and they're being defended rightfully on the basis that they're a religious organization. So there's just, there's some inconsistency there, but regardless. There is a wrinkle to the law though, just to explain on on their defense is the Supreme Court protects atheism and non-belief under the free exercise clause, which is Mm -hmm. what I imagine what's going on here. What I do think is an interesting question is, so like like their their argument from what I gather, given that they very openly admit in this case that they actually don't believe in Satan or worship Satan, is that they're they're arguing that they're protected under that jurisprudence. But the the tricky thing here that the Supreme Court has to grapple with, and they have for a long time, and there are some interesting cases, you know, involving one of my favorite issues, hallucinogenics and peyote, involving tribal societies and and other religious organizations. Uh, we, we covered, I think, one of these early in, in, in Lost Debates history in Utah. The question of what is a religion is a very hard question to answer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Supreme Court suggests that it really has to do not with the belief itself, but how you interact with the belief. So you can almost like you can almost package any belief into a religion as long as you like somehow like meet the standard of fervor and the way you organize your life around it, et cetera. And. The court has had a really hard time with this. Uh, and they've also strangely not struck down blasphemy laws, which seem really, yeah. like, obviously contradictory to the First Amendment. Uh, Absolutely. So, I, and this this kind of implicates all this kind of stuff. And, you know, if, if people want, like, a really interesting side conversation on this, um, you could either watch uh, the Going Clear documentary on HBO or the book by Lawrence Wright all about Scientology. And he writes about all the shit the Scientologists get away with because they're a religious organization. It's kind of scary. Uh, yeah. And so it is a it is a loophole in American society. No, it's definitely true. Um, yeah, the the anti blasphemy law, the fact that quote maliciously reviling God would be something that would not be a First Amendment protected. Uh, exercises speech is confusing to me, certainly. But just to give a little more background on this specific club, this is in Pennsylvania. The ACLU is filing a lawsuit on their behalf. But basically what happened is like 
there they were supposed to submit a permission slip that very clearly said like we as the whatever school uh, Satan club are requesting to use these this facility for a field trip or to rent it out but they needed to say on the permission slip like we are not affiliated with the school or we're not like organized by the school this is an independent student run organization and then they the school basically they are claiming made some pretextual discriminatory fuss over the size of the font and that they didn't adequately uh, demonstrate that they are not a part of the school or not founded by the school. And so they're saying that this is basically like a heckler's veto, First Amendment, religious viewpoint discrimination, which I think if if everything um, turns out to be accurate in that lawsuit, that seems to be the case. I agree with it. Um, and I think, you know, this is just part of a, a larger issue that we've always had in this country. And like the pluralist tradition in America is like always required that we be open to the most provocative and um, sometimes I would say a little annoying people like the, oh, we're going to sing the fun Satan song is, you know, I'll roll my eyes at it. But I think it's completely true that that that's up to kids and parents to figure out whether or not they want to be associated with it. Um, Certainly, if the school was organizing it, I would have an issue with it beyond um, what I do as a student organization. And I think like there there are fellow Christians and religious people who feel the same, um, including this guy, Fred Pry, who is the Associate Vice President of the USA Ministries for Child Evangelism Fellowship. So um, he was on the Christian Broadcasting Network making this very point. The reality is parents are the gatekeepers for all the clubs in schools because you know what? All of them need permission slips signed by parents. So parents hold the power. Parents are the ones that control the Satan clubs because if no children sign up, the Satan club isn't going to exist. So that's the way to solve it. Good for him. I'm with him. Well, I don't... This is, I don't know what to say about this other than... You can join the Satan Club, Robbie. I won't discriminate against look, you. It's okay. I want to know where the adult Satan Club is because I'm a little jealous that only the kids join get their to temple. do this. No, yeah. they, have the whole, they have the whole national organization that you can plug right into. I'm sure yeah, they have a chapter a in New York. I went to a seance once in New York. Really? Maybe I could become yeah. a priest, you know? Father Gupta. A spiritualist. Father Gupta, yeah. Speaking of Satan, uh, Andrew Tate uh, is oh. a is, is a internet personality. Ricky, you've written about him recently in the in the pages of our very own New York Post. And yes. uh, let's talk before you lay out your argument as to like the culpability of others in Andrew Tate's sort of rise. Just explain to us a little bit about who Andrew Tate is and what some of his views are. Yeah. So he, I have to say, I am like super plugged into the manosphere and weird internet crevices. And I know what's going on in the incel world because I've always just found this interesting from an anthropological standpoint. And I'm, you know, I'm an online person. I'm on the, the weird crevices of Twitter. I did not know who he was until everyone suddenly knew who he was a couple of months ago. I have no idea how he flew under my radar. And I think it's because I'm not in these like native, very Gen Z 
crevices of like TikTok and stuff. And so he had this weird subsection of the internet that somehow instantaneously, apparently he was just like dominating and he had 5 million Instagram followers and these like young guys that it was beyond just his posts, but they would repost his stuff. And I would say my take on him is I don't, I think there's this false idea that if there's somebody who has unsavory ideas or says, grotesque things that everything that they've ever said is wrong. I don't think that's the case. I think sometimes he has uncomfortable truths that he says, but he also says some pretty horrendous stuff. And it's like, if you, if it would be like the exceptions that people take to Jordan Peterson times like a hundred and he's, yeah. I had an argument with Chris Stewart on the Chris Stewart podcast about this because he was trying to equate the two. And I was like, no, absolutely. I was like, nah, I'm sorry. Let's actually play a montage. I've not heard this montage, so I haven't either. We don't this do trigger warnings, but whatever the the lost oh, debate we do versions, not do trigger warnings. whatever the no. equivalent is, this is going to be ears. So, this going to be we're going to haze shit. you. <laughs> uh, so just so you know, I don't know what this clip is going to have on it. So let's just play it. I will stand up right here and say I am sexist. Now I don't mean that in a bad way, right? Because I'm sexist both ways. I try and say this all the time, but no one can seem to fathom it, especially not feminists with their minuscule brains. I ain't having my chicks. Talking to other dudes, liking other dudes. My chicks don't go to the club without me. They are at home. You know what's so attractive about younger women? A lot of these dudes (laughs) talk about fertility and and looks and stuff. I don't actually think it's that. I think that in the modern world, in the days of old, right? You'd meet a woman, you get married, you'd be together, whatever. In the modern world, if I meet a girl who's 33 (laughs) and single, I know the amount of dick that's been through her before me is just simply unattractive. If I get a 19 year old girl, I might be her second or third man, right? I'm gonna be dude number fucking 29. If I had a woman, I would decide not to cheat because I decide. However, I would not see my infidelity as nearly anywhere near even 1% as disgusting as female infidelity because female infidelity involves emotion. You will not sleep with a man you don't like. I can sleep with a woman I don't like. Life for a man is harder than life for a woman. We need to have a lot of shit to be an important man. To be a woman, you need makeup. If you're truly beautiful, you don't need anything else. I've been on boats in Dubai with 19-year-old Moldovan girls. The guy who got that boat needed $100 million. That bitch, makeup. So, all right, it, worth saying a couple other things. Uh, he is, uh, he was arrested uh, for in Romania rape and human trafficking. Uh, he's he's been released Romania. on house arrest um, pending investigation on them and, on those charges. And he said uh, to Sky News before moving to Romania that probably 40% of the reason he moved there is because it might be easier to evade charges. He says he likened it to being free. Uh, He said that uh, he would react to a woman accused of cheating on him by, quote, it's bang out the machete, boom in her face, and grip her by the neck. He said that uh, uh, women who are sexually assaulted bear, quote, some responsibility. You know, there's just a lot of this stuff. And I think, per your point, like, I take a different view on on people like him, which is like, look, there's there's one thing. It's one thing if you're like, you know, Jordan Peterson and waiting into certain territories. There's another thing when you say stuff like that where I'm just like, you know what? I still believe in a thing called polite society and I just Yeah, I no, hundred percent. I don't hundred percent I don't like the whole platforming language. I just I think this guy is an idiot. And I think he has little to offer. Anything else he has to say once I hear things like this, I'm like, we should ostracize people like this because he's truly grotesque. Uh, and I don't think yeah, that's- Yeah, I think f- it's just called don't listen to them. Yeah. I'm not saying he should be banned or anything like that. I do think that there's yeah, a whole separate question. Banned. There's a whole separate question about like schools. All social media. You know, like I do think like, you know, there's this article in the New York Times that we talked about in the Chris Stewart podcast around, you know, kids in schools trading this. I do think when kids are trading videos talking about- 
like sexual assault in this way or hitting a woman with a machete. I would say that, that this is wrong. not a representative sample of all the things that he said ever. Like, I, th I th don't think that that's, th I don't see the most extreme stuff that he's said, which is what's represented here is what's being circulated by boys as much. There's some like, you know, there's a whole variety of this is the most offensive that he has to offer. It's certainly not great, but I would say as soon as you tell a teenager, oh, your teachers and your parents don't want you to listen to this guy, then everyone's going to be listening to him. And I think yeah. that will make it a hundred times worse. But, we did, you know, yeah. that's just... That's basically where Chris and I came down, actually. We were like, look, like, y there is a forbidden fruit element of this. Though 100%. I do take issue. I did watch a lot of Andrew Tate, and it screwed up my algorithms when I was doing the research for the Citizen Stewart stuff. And I listened to whole <laughs> interviews for him, including the Barstool Sports one, where Dave Portnoy, of all people, was pushing back against him. What do you <laughs> and, mean, of all people? Meaning, I would say that Dave Portnoy is not A lot your, of people on the right push against not, this guy. This is not some but, representative. But my point being... Listen to those interviews. I don't think this is like cherry picking. Like this is this guy's views. Uh, and there was a funny moment in that interview where he was claiming that women have, like, are dumber basically than men. And th he was fact checked on air about a point he made about IQ that I thought was really funny and really well done by the barstool sports people. But all of this is to say, like, I just I think this is representative. But I don't think that's why we're talking about him. We're talking about him because you have a theory about who beyond Andrew Tate. I think we all agree that Andrew Tate is responsible for Andrew Tate, but like there are other people responsible for the rise of Andrew Tate. I think I think my article has been misinterpreted by people who are saying that I'm I'm ascribing some sort of causality between the like issues that boys are having and the debate about toxic masculinity or Andrew Tate. I think what's my, my case that I tried to lay out here is there's um, based largely on Richard Reeves of boys and men. Um, he's a, gosh, where is he? A Brookings Institute fellow. And he, I interviewed him for this piece. I thought he did a really fabulous book um, that was very moderate, very level-headed, not ideological about how there are legitimate struggles that, that males in society are having just looking at the statistics on education, on deaths of despair, on um, workplace issues and unemployment and dropping out of the workforce. And there's there's something going on with boys and men. And there are that doesn't mean that there aren't things going on with women. That doesn't mean that there aren't women's issues. But we as a society have kind of pretended this is a zero-sum thing where you can't talk about issues that different genders face. And so I use that as kind of my basis of, you know, there's actual things going on that boys are struggling. Boys are not achieving as highly in school. Boys are not getting degrees. Boys are dropping out of school. Boys are dropping out of the workforce. Boys are much more, they're three and four um, deaths by drinking or male, seven and 10 opioid or overdoses, four and five suicide deaths. During the pandemic, young men, their suicide rates in just one year from 15 to 24 year olds went up by 8% in just a year while their female counterparts, not at all. So there's certain issues going on of isolation and retreat. And, you know, is it video games contributing to that? Is it porn use contributing to that? I don't know. But my point and where I think this all falls into the Andrew Tate thing is that, you know, there's boys are struggling in some ways in society. And at the same time, there is a faction of society that's saying, you know, girl power and you do you. And I think my my script as a young woman growing up in my generation is fundamentally different from any even my mom. I, I not as much as my grandmother, but, you know, I've, I've been put on a f 
fundamentally different track by society. I think that's an awesome thing. But at the same time, we've also just been like, oh, gender roles and everything that existed before doesn't exist anymore. And here's this new thing for girls to do and girl power, like do your thing, more power to you. But then at the same time, boys have not been given a similar narrative to glom onto. And where do they fit now? in society. I think that that, I agree with Richard Reeves that that's an issue. And I think that toxic masculinity and the idea that there's something intrinsically wrong with um, masculinity is not a healthy thing to be telling a demographic of people who are committing suicide disproportionately, who are struggling disproportionately. Um, And I think creating that vacuum and saying, not only do you not have a script of what where you fit in society now, but you're, you're inherently intrinsically toxic for being male is just like a breeding ground for people like Tate to come in and say, actually, now here's your new script. Not only are you going to be like the traditional male, but you're going to embrace it even more aggressively than your grandparent may have. Um, and I, th- I think that creates a vacuum for these, these grifty reactionaries, personally. And here's uh, actually Andrew Tate. He's, he seems like he's aware of this sort of dynamic. Uh, this was him on Piers Morgan back in December of 2022. Dame Sheila Hancock says we've become too over-emotional as a society, crying too much about everything. Has she got a point? She's completely right. And the dangerous thing about overly emotional men is that they're dangerous. They're genuinely dangerous. This is what's crazy. All these people who talk about toxic masculinity and how bad it is for men to be traditionally masculine. A traditionally masculine man does things he doesn't feel like doing because it is his duty to do them. He charges into the building because it is his duty. Not because he feels like it, because it is his duty. We're now teaching the new generation of men that they don't have duty and they can just act on their feelings and act how they feel and they don't have to act as a man should. Do you know what happens when you get men who just act how they feel? You get school shooters, you get violence, you get rapists. Men who do not control their emotions are dangerous. If you find a man who is stoic, he's not going to hurt people. He's going to sit and think about his actions very carefully, and he's going to be a good man who protects for, and provides for his family. You find a man who just acts out on impulse and does whatever he feels like, you're going to find a dangerous man. Sitting here telling men to cry more and act with their feelings, and it's okay to feel this way, that way, etc., and have no self-control. That is why we have the problems we have. This is something I see a lot on the internet, which is a false choice. Either we got school shooters and money, quote unquote, cry all the time. I don't know those men. Where are the, where are the men crying all the time? Not one in my life. Uh, by the way, okay to cry, uh, which I'll get to. Uh, and then we got stoicism pitted against crying all the time or school shooters. Yeah. And I'm like, and I agree. I agree. What an absurd dichotomy. And we have toxic dichotomy. masculinity versus like, or like castigating men for being toxically masculine versus like actually embracing toxically masculine (laughs) characteristics like this is the false choice that somehow you either need to believe in in equality of the sexes and that masculinity is it's but like equality and believing in a healthy masculinity that's a false choice too and i think that that's that's where tate like i actually agree with part of what he's saying here about the like there, there are adrift men that feel that they have no purpose in this world. And I do think that that is something that contributes to school shootings and acts of violence and, you know, burning cars and rebellions. But that's being quelled by by video games and porn. Like, I do think if we didn't have those outlets for young men that we might have an issue on our hands that's even larger than the one that we already do. But the answer is not to be like, oh, I'm going to go create a harem in like Romania yeah, for some reason. But I- 
I also think like I think it shortchanges the many, many people out there who are working on this issue. So like I think if you look like because the dichotomy is also being set up between the people who throw around terms like toxic masculinity in a particular way. I do think there is a very important conversation around masculinity. Like there's no guy that I know, especially people my age, who didn't play on a sports team wasn't a part of a group of guys who said terrible things about women at a certain point and probably acted on those things. Like, I don't know a person who doesn't look back at their childhood or whatever, or how those men talked about homosexuals, especially back in the late 90s, early 2000s. There is a problem with the way when a lot of guys get together, there is a uniquely male type of conversation that can happen that we as guys need to take a hold of and take responsibility over and yeah. make it better. Uh, and you can, we yeah. can call it toxic masculinity. Some people do. Some people use that term and go too far. But I do think there are all these people in the middle who are like, whether it's David Goggins or Scott Galloway or whoever, who are like... Richard Reeves. I Richard Reeves, yeah. And, like, and, it, and these people, I think this conversation is getting more and more prominent. Like there was a great Dak Shepard uh, conversation with Scott Galloway but on But I this. think this is all so freaking recent. Like it's so crazy recent and yep. we haven't been talking about this and there have been long-term trends and as as women have been laudably achieving more and more in education and in the workforce for some reason there's been an inverse response in in men and i you know the a point that um that richard reeves and i'm not saying that's necessarily caused by one another but you know it's just what's been unfolding um but one thing that he said to me when we when i did this interview that i thought was great it was like basically saying like the idea that we shouldn't be talking about this or that we haven't been talking about this is like telling a parent like oh your son and your daughter which one do you want to succeed Mm -hmm. like there's nothing anti-feminist about talking about issues that men are facing and how to help them and and what society needs to do to be more attuned to their needs in a completely new setup in terms of the role of men and women in society. And I I think women have, I mean, we've achieved so much in such a short period of time. It's astonishing to think even just like my grandmother's life is just completely different from my own. And I, I, we want to keep everyone like held up to the highest standard in society. But when we have things like you, you go to bookstores now and it's like books like men suck or how to date men when you hate men. Imagine the inverse of that. Imagine somebody in polite society at the Strand bookstore buying a book called how to date women when you hate women. Well, that would be, those books have sold well that the the title might be different, but my, you know, my friend Neil Strauss wrote the game, which is like a book about manipulating women to date you. And he very openly admits in that. And that was a bestseller. Uh, And so like, I do think these, what do you say? When was that? I don't know, like 10 years ago, something like that. But yeah, I don't know. I want to see that. I want to see that cover on the in polite society, how to date women when you hate women. But okay. I don't, I don't think we should be hating any swaths of society. And for some reason, that's just become acceptable discourse. And I, I hear it all agree. the time. But it's you, like, I hate men. I hate men. Men suck. And it's like, look, I, as a guy, <laughs> I don't want anybody to hate me. And there have been sometimes weird conversations around this kind of stuff, but I would say it has not impeded my life even a bit. And I've operated on the left. I'm talking about younger boys that are growing up in this context and for somehow under everyone's radar, including my own, your own teachers, parents, someone like Andrew Tate, all of a sudden exists, which is like turning the clock back to like 
prehistory. I mean, since who goes and starts a harem of webcam models in Romania? Like, how is this somehow our society has created a hole for someone like that to fill? It's just crazy to me. I do agree with you on some of this, that there's a, there is a vacuum to be filled. But I do think like in the end, the internet is going to create all kinds of crazy at scale. I just think is how it works. But let me like, let me get to, because I think I generally, I, I agree with you in the big point that we need to be talking about this more. I do think that the, I, I looked at some of the articles that you linked that were like the toxic masculinity articles. And I was trying to think about because like I do have a reaction when I hear toxic masculinity. I hear it thrown around all the time. I've been accused of it by people when I talk about things like working out that I don't think are masculine at all. I just think they're healthy practices, right? So I agree with that the term could be thrown around in ways that are stupid. The Scientific American piece, though, made me think because it listed out what they viewed as, as toxic masculinity. And this is one of the pieces that you link to. And, and the first thing they listed was suffer pain and silence. Now, and that also seems to be somewhat what Andrew Tate is saying is part of what his version of masculinity is. Now, I think this is interesting, and, and I do think it's worth zooming out from this and take the clowns out of this. Take the people who are overusing toxic masculinity and take uh, Andrew Tate's out of this. And it re this reminds me of something that's real, which is, like, as a kid, as an adult, like, you are, as a man really expected to bottle in your emotions. I also think there's something about men in certain cases that make them more likely to bottle in their emotions. And it reminds me of this documentary on HBO called The Momentum Generation, which is all about this group of kids in the 90s who revolutionized surfing. And they all came from broken homes. And they all came together in Hawaii and they became like the best pro surfers. And they were mentored by this guy named Chad, Todd Chesser. And spoiler alert, if you want to watch this documentary, you might want to just skip the next 30 seconds or minute. But this guy, Todd Chester, died. And I, they were trying to make meaning of this. And this is very much, they're older than I am, but I very much came up in this culture. And it's relevant because, yes, there's a whole different thing going on with kids today. But there's also those of us who were kids who were raised a certain way when we're having conversations about toxic masculinity. And if we talk about suffering and pain and silence as being a thing we want to solve, I believe that. That's a problem that we need to solve with men. And here's a clip that I think demonstrates it. This is how they, these now guys, now adults, are talking about how they handled this death and how they wish they'd handled it. Men have the hardest time with feelings and emotion. A lot of macho, a lot of ego. So you never really go, let's talk about this. In our group of friends, I don't know if we ever actually sat around and said, hey, man, how are you doing with that? It was just something I wanted to forget. And I think that goes for a lot of us. We felt like Todd had been taken from us personally. Not just our group, but like us personally. I felt like he'd been taken from me. My way of dealing with it was I just felt more comfortable by myself. I just didn't want to talk about it anymore. I didn't want to think about it anymore. If we would have sat down and just like talked it out, it would have helped a lot of us process it better. We were kind of worried about showing weakness. You don't want to show your competitor weakness. And so and he goes on to talk about the masculinity angle too. And it's like, mm -hmm. look, like, that's where I think, like, when I, I want to be generous to the people, like the scientific American piece, that, yes, it uses the term 
toxic masculinity, but they're getting yeah. at a real thing, which is like, oh, yeah. it's hard to have certain kinds of conversations, you know, as 100%. a guy. 100%. I mean, yeah. what I just reject is the framing. And I don't think that's appropriate coming from a, a publication like that. Like it could be how to fight the expectation of stoicism among men. Mm-hmm. And like, I just don't, I reject this framing in the same way that I would say a legitimate problem about female culture, especially growing up is how frankly nasty and bitchy and catty girls can be in middle school and gossipy and backstabby. But I would never say that's toxic femininity or that there's something intrinsically wrong with women for that. Like I would write an, I wouldn't write an article how to fight toxic femininity about that. I'd say how to fight catty culture in middle school or whatever. Like there are, there are just gendered issues that come up and I think calling them what they are rather than obscuring them with these flashy names and these, these frankly like anti or like adversarial names in a way. I just don't think, I don't think that's right. I don't think it's helpful. And I think it's alienating people. I think it's alienating young men because I'm not saying that we should go back to like before we had any conversation about what masculinity means. I think it's just about like similarly empowering young men to find their place in society is in the way that we've empowered young women to do so. And we've done a great job at that. And boys are falling behind in a lot of key measures and I think just having a good faith conversation about it which I agree with you has been happening more and more is the way forward on this front hey this is Ricky read the last debate if you have some feedback for us leave it after the town let's go to our voicemails Hey, my name is Grace, and I'm a 16-year-old from Maryland. I've become increasingly concerned with my generation's uh, fear and desire for censorship um, and their lack of understanding of the need of our civil liberties as well as free speech. So my question to you is, how do I explain to my peers that we should treasure and cherish the ideals of our nation, including free speech and civil liberties, while not respecting the issues that are in our country, like climate change, racial inequality, et cetera. Thanks. I assume this one will be mine. Yes. Um, but yeah, this makes me happy. I, I completely agree that that our generation, and obviously um, Grace is a younger Gen Zer, but same cohort, is increasingly divorced from free speech values. And I, I certainly don't think that those values are in any way mutually exclusive from whatever progress you want to see made by this country. In fact, I think looking back at history and and the movements that we have and the the civil liberties victories that we've had and um, the tremendous progress that's been made, especially over the last century, all of that's been predicated on free speech. And I think reframing free speech, not as a conservative value or even as an ideological value at all whatsoever, and reminding your friends that that the people that they celebrate in history today were once in an ideological minority that were only able to express themselves because of freedom of speech and because we tolerated them protesting and them standing up for what they believed in is why we have what we have today. And certainly reminding your friends and your cohort that maintaining those values going forward, I mean, that's that's the answer to how you get progress on on what you believe in and what you think is most important. 
Well, with that, well, I just love that we have young listeners. That makes me really happy. I know, happy. too. That uh, made it, me really happy. A 16-year-old who cares about free speech, I don't even care about free speech yet. Yeah, maybe we should put a parental advisory warning on some of these episodes. Like, <laughs> but, uh, but with that, uh, thank you so much, Grace, for sending in that voicemail. Uh, we are, you know, Ricky and I are back together now doing normal episodes, so we're going to make sure we get to more of your voicemails. You know, go check yeah. out our, our new website, our new stuff. Send me some thoughts on the populism stuff, especially, because I'll be doing some videos on that. I would love to, to continue that discussion and debate. Uh, but with that, we'll be back here on, what are we today, Thursday? We'll be back on Tuesday, and you'll be back in the country. I will. Lost Debate is the flagship show of The Branch. Our executive producer is Nick Perrone. Research support from Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra. Video editing by Julia Waldman. Audio editing by Dean Metherell. <laughs>